Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to be joined today by the winner of the most recent Mae Swenson Poetry Award, which is administered out of Utah State University, and the volume of poetry called Ode to the Heart Smaller Than a Pencil Eraser is published by Utah State University Press, and so we welcome in Louisa A. E. Gloria. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, reading from your biography, you're a professor of creative writing and English, director of the MFA of creative writing program at Old Dominion University, which is in Virginia, right? That's right. Um, and uh, previously published 10 books, and uh, your works appeared in numerous anthologies and journals, including Missouri Review, Indiana Review, Poetry East, and North American Review, and others. Originally from uh, Baguio City in the Philippines. Yes, yes. It's uh, in the north. It's about six hours from the capital, Manila. Okay. It was originally built as a hill station for the American colonial government at the turn of the last century, around the 1900s, by a Chicago architect, Daniel Burnham. Interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. L- a lot of history back and forth. Lots of history. Yeah. In fact, uh, history that predates um, my arrival in, in the U.S. Okay. as well. So. Uh, so this is in the north. So uh, do you have relatives still back there? And I do. I still have family there. My mm-hmm. eldest daughter and my mother still live there. And were, were they affected by the typhoon? No, no, okay. but thank you for asking. Thank, we are further thankfully, north. Thankfully, yes, yes. yeah. Uh, one of the most devastating events, I guess. Yes, but uh, it's something that we all collectively yeah. uh, feel sympathy for and yeah. a lot of empathy for. Right. Um, so now in Virginia, you say in your biography, with most of your family. Mm-hmm. So uh, Heading toward an empty nest now, or what? Nah, well, not quite yet. Mm-hmm. We have a, we have a thirteen going on fourteen year old okay. still living with us. I have um, a daughter who is uh, also in in the MFA Creative Writing Program at UVA, and she is finishing up. Uh, she's doing a degree in poetry. I wonder why. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and All the other one there. is uh, doing a music performance degree at okay. ECU. Interesting. Yeah. So a couple of your children in, into the arts. Mm-hmm. Following and all daughters. Yeah. yeah, all, all four daughters. All four daughters. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you about uh, Mae Swenson. Of course, we're proud of Mae Swenson, a, a Logan native, mm-hmm. and the, the Mae Swenson Award. Uh, you're the winner, most recently. What uh, had you been familiar with the poetry of Mae yeah, Swenson? Yeah, yes, and I've taught some of her poetry as well in my um, poetry courses, creative writing workshops, as well as literature courses. In fact, uh, even as far back as when I was still uh, living and teaching in the Philippines, I had been familiar with her work. And I know that she's a very important voice in American poetry. She's very provocative. And I'm very glad that uh, the series exists in order to keep preserving the legacy that she has for us all Mm. in American letters. Yeah. Uh, So where would you place her? We always categorize, right? What... uh what, what stands out to you from, from her poetry? Well, I think that she had a very risky kind of um, voice. She was willing to try new turns of syntax, and she was very original, I think, in, in her image making. And also the kinds of sounds that she makes in her poetry, I think, were very forward and ahead of her time. And that's really what interests me. I mean, even before my own awareness that uh, the Mae Swenson Prize existed and, you know, a competition was here in order to encourage poets and, you know, that Utah State is uh, a place that is connected to to Mae Swenson. All of that was sort of after the fact knowledge, but her poetry is, is singular and unique for, for these qualities. 
Interesting, the, the sounds. The sounds, yes. Makes. For instance, where she breaks a line, mm-hmm. or um, where she will produce a startling image, and right. the kind of syncopative energy that she builds within the lines of poems are, are quite startling and very modern, are mm-hmm. still very contemporary, yeah. even today. So, so that word stood out to me because it's in my head. Mm-hmm. And I suppose there's a sound in the right, in the head, right. but but it, it'd be different from from the poet reading mm-hmm. their work. I suppose so. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, um, at the reading that I just did uh, about a week ago here for the May Swenson Prize, I read a translation of one of her probably most famous or ma- most anthologized poems, "Question." Uh, And I tried to do that in Filipino or Tagalog, as some might put it more colloquially. Uh, And it was startling to me how, at least in in my own working on that particular poem in the translation, how some of that sense of sound also carried over nicely, even across a different language. It carried over. I I thought it did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Interesting. Mm -hmm. Is there something universal? Well, some of these ideas and translation to sound from language to language to language, maybe? Mm, maybe, and maybe also because they speak to very basic uh, human experiences. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that's what we're hearing. Mm-hmm. Even if we may not get the entire sense or the uh, the intellectual meaning or the logical meaning of what we're hearing, we can perhaps sense some of the urgency and the inflection of emotional experience yeah. Yeah. on the surface of the poem. Uh, have you done other translations? I have. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. uh, back and forth, or back you know, and from forth. One, yeah, from from Filipino yeah, to yeah. English, yeah, and, and it's mostly uh, a personal kind of thing because I don't want uh, my ability to um, think and speak in you know my more native languages. Although I consider English as a sort of first language too, mm-hmm. but I digress. But yeah. you know, I want I want to keep that sense of agility, uh, hopefully alive for as long as I can. Yeah. But going back to that thought of um, I've been I've been asked uh, any number of times by people, why don't you write in your um, native language? And I pause. That kind of question gives me pause, and I say. Well, what is my native language? Because I grew up in a household where I came to awareness of three languages simultaneously, and English was one of them. So in a way, I I kind of don't want to think of English as a second language because mm-hmm. I, I came to an awareness of it at the same time that I, I learned Ilocano, which is w- what we speak up north in Baguio, and also Filipino or Tagalog at the same time that I learned English. And when I was going to school uh, in my elementary uh, days, I remember distinctly that there was an English-only rule imposed by uh, the school administration. It was I I attended a Catholic school, which was run by um, Belgian nuns and priests. So when I think about that kind of scenario, I think about how they, too, must have been feeling uh, the same kinds of um, like uh, awareness of myself that I do as a person of color uh, in you know in the trans global world today you know writing uh, across cultures but feeling also the kind of um, geographic and other kinds of drifts in time that we've experienced also his- historically so English was a sort of you know weird you know meeting ground but at the same time it was very much a part of our awareness of of who we were mm-hmm. as colonized people. So that's interesting. There's a whole history here. Yeah. Not all of it positive mm. associated with English, right? Yeah, You're yeah. Forced yeah, to speak yeah. English. <laughs> yes. Uh, I guess you've come to peace with it. 
you you write your poems in English. Um, I do um, because I, I I am facile in these languages, and so uh, I think that um, my approach to this kind of question is that my response would be that I have claimed it also as one of the places mm-hmm. I can I can fertilize with my own experiences and yeah. my own history. Mm-hmm. It puts them in mind of the history of American Indians in, mm-hmm. you know, in many areas of the U.S., mm-hmm. where you know kids were shipped to schools, and mm-hmm. and the attempt was made to totally acculturate them in, mm-hmm. you know, in American culture. Had to speak English, mm-hmm. you know, that that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. The whole history of, you know, there in this country as well. Right. Um, so I wonder, uh, moving back and forth between uh, languages, and you want to you want to keep it. What was your word? You want to be facile between the. You know all all the languages. Agility, I think. Mm-hmm. The Agility. Language. Yeah, I found learning Spanish. Um, this was for an LDS mission, but I I, f- I found that I felt like I had arrived when I started dreaming. In Spanish, which happened after I was hearing Spanish a lot, mm-hmm. um, and then coming coming back, mm-hmm. um, I. I had forgotten some English words, and mm-hmm. you know, the, the Spanish words were stuck in my mind. I don't mm-hmm. know. And then, of so course, there's always those things that don't quite translate. That don't quite translate, in, yes. In either of those mm-hmm. languages. So that brings me to translation of poetry. Uh, the conventional wisdom is poetry is the hardest to translate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're working with something that's ineffable to begin with. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a, a very um, mysterious kind of you know discipline to work in because you... You are working with, um, in a sense, language is always an, an elegy for the thing which um, it attempts to uh, embody in language. It's always one step, at least, removed from the original experience. And yet you're using this very thing that's very elusive uh, in order to go back and return to that language, which cannot be replicated. Mm-hmm. So it's a, um, that sense of mystery, I think, is what draws me to poetry in the first place because it, it tells me uh, or it promises the idea of potential, of possibility. Um, it promises me that um, maybe think, you know things like uh, history, the things that we consider uh, over and done with are not necessarily over and done with, that you as a writer can, can interfere with that. You can insert your perspective. You can um, reconceive uh, the configurations that have been given to U.S. history and think of a different narrative line. So I, I use poetry to kind of do that too, to mm. reimagine what has been as well as what might be. Mm. How early did you start? Well, first of all, my parents um, had raised me as an only child, and I remember that they taught me very young, very early on to read. I learned to read at age three, and because I was um, often taken along with them on, you know, whatever grown-up jaunts they had, they, they often would thrust a book into my, my hands and say, amuse yourself. And so <laughs> words are very much a part of, of um, my formative experiences, and uh, a love for for the arts was also instilled in me by my parents. I learned um, to play music at the, around the same time that I learned to read. Uh, I started piano lessons at the age of three, and I would have actually probably gone on to conservatory if my English teachers in in college had not kidnapped me for life. <laughs> what I call it, yes. It's interesting to me how certain people are drawn to poetry, others mm-hmm. to prose, other, some mm-hmm. people to no interest in, in the arts at all. Yeah, 
Yeah. So writing in general, I think first uh, was the the lure um, and stories were very much uh, an early lure. My mother would tell me stories and I listened. I eavesdropped on stories all the time. Um, in my household, this is an extended household in the Philippines. There's no concept of closed doors. And you had relatives all over and people were kind of like, you know, the whole it takes a village to, to raise a child concept, but very physically so. Uh, and so there was always a constant stream of people in my um, awareness, in my environment growing up as a child. And I would uh, I would just, you know, remember um, sitting in the kitchen, one corner, you know, being given something to amuse myself. Um, one story that I like to tell my writing students now um, is that I must have been two or three again, and um, my mother would put uh, a winnowing basket in front of me and give me a little bag of lima beans to peel. And it's only now as an adult that I realize that you don't really need to peel the things in order to eat them. <laughs> so I think this is really their way of getting me out of their hair. Mm -hmm. But I tell my students this is probably, you know, most useless, meaningless task because, you know, it's, it's futile labor in one sense, but it taught me attention. Mm. Uh, and I love just eavesdropping. You know, I would do this, you know, throughout my growing up years and loved soaking up the stories and, and the gossip, of course, and hearing the drama around me. And that led to, um, you know, an interest in creative writing in high school. And I joined the college paper when I was uh, in college. And when I was 21, I believe, I was told by my college professors that I was ready, whatever that meant, mm -hmm. to enter my poems in what was uh, then and still probably the most influential, most prestigious uh, literary prize in the Philippines. This is the Palanca Award, and some people consider it the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize um, with some contextual differences, I, I suppose, in terms of the culture and the, um, the, the social, you know, the other meanings attached to it. But so I entered my poems, and I was overwhelmed when I received first prize. And I said, what do I do now? <laughs> but uh, since then, it's been no looking back. And I have loved um, every step of, you know, discovery about myself, about um, what I can bring to the page, what I can learn from so many other writers who, ha who have gone before me who are walking the same road. Um, and so now I'm also teaching. Right, um, right. And Full trying circle. to impart yeah. the same things that I've learned, and I'm still trying to learn at the same time mm -hmm. as my students. You're talking about observation. Mm -hmm. um, we think of poets as having heightened mm -hmm. observational skills, which is probably true. Yeah. And then you translate that, and, and you, uh, you meld that with your thoughts. Uh, and so the poem I thought of from your collection was uh, Interior with Roman Shades and Lovers. I wonder if I'd have you read that. Sure. Interior with Roman Shades and Lovers Do you remember I told you about the afternoon in the coffee shop? The heat, another layer of white, laid across the stucco. The silver samovars lined up on the shelf next to blue and yellow ceramic bowls. The espresso machine hissing in the corner. Distracted by so much warmth, I asked the girl tending the register if I could draw the sheer Roman shades partway down. 
And then the man walked in, mobile phone at his ear, hips sheathed in denim, white shirt offsetting a burnished face, the gray hair at his temples. He carried a gift bag swathed in ribbons. Outside, tiger and spicebush swallowtails splayed open their wings, circled, then rested on the white lilac. The woman he was waiting for arrived. They took the table farthest from the windows. They held hands. They kissed. Birthday, smiled the girl, bringing cappuccinos and napkins. The woman smoothed her dark brown hair. Packing up my papers and my books and pens, I peered at the sky. If it had rained right then, I might have gone out under the trees to be, like the lover and his lover, awash in that murmur, passing like a single flower between them. That's Interior with Roman Shades and Lovers. The, the poet is Louisa A. Gloria, my guest for the Hour in Axis, Utah today. So that's that's a moment. Yeah, a moment of observation. Yeah. Uh, sort of like a voyeuristic moment, mm-hmm. almost. But uh, it's also a way to reconstruct and to imagine, you know, the, the small... Um, glimpses of human drama, human life that are always happening around us. It's only the interior of a coffee shop. It's only a small moment before rain. And I do a lot of my writing when, you know, when I can, when I'm waiting for my daughter to come out of school or out of her music rehearsals. I sometimes write in coffee shops. I also sometimes just write in the car or whenever or wherever I find myself. But uh, this particular scene suggested uh, some other possibilities for, you know, empathy and, you know, trying to, to maybe bring that moment alive mm-hmm. in, in language. There's mystery there as mystery, well, isn't yeah, there? Yeah. You, you don't know everything. About them. It, it's a moment. Yeah, yeah. You don't know what's going to happen, but but it's, yeah. it's a well-observed but I, moment. I, I yeah. observed them, and, you know, they were so tender. and It was just so um, touching. Yeah. And I wrote a poem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's take a break. Uh, we will uh, come back with Louisa A. Gloria. She is the winner of the May Swenson uh, Poetry Award. Her collection, Ode to the Heart Smaller Than a Pencil Eraser, is out, published by Utah State University Press. Hi there, this is Bill McLaughlin of Exploring Music, and next week we are exploring a very simple idea, strings plus. Just take a couple of stringed instruments and add... Oh, Jean-Pierre Rampal, for example, or Rudolf Serkin, or even Benny Goodman playing with Josef Zygeti and Béla Bartók. It's Strings Plus featuring music of Mozart, Brahms, Dvorak, Boccherini, and Samuel Barber next week on Exploring Music. Weekday afternoons at 1 and Monday through Thursday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and doctors Cameron Peterson and Jonathan Swenson, Logan Regional Orthopedics, offering non-surgical treatments for pinched nerve pain, back and neck pain, and chronic problems such as tendinitis and arthritis, helping athletes and older patients return to full function, 435-716-2800. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're back with Louisa A.E. Gloria. Uh, She is author, most recently, of uh, the collection Ode to the Heart Smaller Than a Pencil Eraser. And she's the winner of the most recent May Swenson Poetry Award through uh, Utah State University Press. And uh, Luisa Igloria is a native of the Philippines, Baguio City. Uh, she has four daughters, makes her home in Virginia, 
and she is professor of creative writing and English director of the MFA creative writing program at Old Dominion University. And she has published uh, 10 previous books. Her work has appeared in numerous anthologies uh, and uh, journals. Glad to have Luisa A. Gloria with us uh, today. I wonder uh, if we could, uh, I could have you read uh, the poem, which is referenced by Mark Doty, the judge, mm-hmm. right uh, this year, and he selected uh, you. I don't know if you've been familiar with the poetry of Mark Doty. Oh, yes, mm-hmm. I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah. So it is a great honor to have um, my work selected by him for this prize. Uh, yeah, that must be a, it's a great compliment. Yeah. Um, so he makes reference to uh, this, this poem, mm-hmm. Dear Epictetus, this is to you attributed. I wonder if you could have you read that, and we'll talk a little bit about it. Right. So in this book, uh, I use a number of forms, um, both received and imposed. And some of the poems that uh, are imposed forms, I guess, are letter poems where I address something or someone or an idea. um, And I I, I talk to that idea and I kind of work it out in in the poem. So this one um, is addressed to Epictetus. Dear Epictetus, this is to you attributed. Thou art a little soul bearing about a corpse. And even then you were talking to all of us, weren't you? Ghostly presences in a future we now inhabit, tumbling swiftly from one gate to another. Last week, moments before the train departed, the Jackson Street Station for O'Hare, and a flight I had no idea would be canceled three times before I could board. A woman got on, breathless, asking passengers near the doors, Chinatown? Chinatown? She had on a thin cloth coat, and her short bob of graying hair was plastered to her forehead. No one blinked. Perhaps they couldn't hear from whatever was playing on their earphones, or maybe they were tourists. Before the door swung shut, I caught her eye and shook my head, yelled, Red line, red line, and she darted off. I don't know if she ever made it to her destination. Time is like a river made up of the events which happen and a violent stream. For as soon as a thing has been seen, it is carried away and another comes in its place. Therefore, all that afternoon into evening, as thin snow began to fall again on the tarmac, streaking the windows, chilling the glass, seats filled and emptied, emptied and filled, as though the blue light flickering near the ceiling of the concourse were that same river's garment. Anxious passengers watched as TV monitors showed footage of town after town hit by a single tornado. New Pekin, Henryville, Marysville, Chelsea, before it crossed the Ohio River into Kentucky. The hours stretched, and in their fluid arms there might have been the call of the morning dove. There might have been a sparrow slight as a child born aloft before the dark column of air set her down in the field. So that's a moment. Mm-hmm. Again, you've connected it with other events. Yes. Which are being, I guess, being viewed yes. by, the, by, yes. the, by the passengers. Uh, so I want to uh, want to uh, go back to the foreword by Mark Doty. And he, so he, he references this quote that you have in the, this poem. As soon as a thing has been seen, it's carried away. Another mm-hmm. comes in its place. And so he talks about the, you know, this is uh, 
Epictetus, a Stoic philosopher. Mm-hmm. He might be offering this principle as cause for detachment, but mm-hmm. he, he suspects you uh, you have a different uh, mm-hmm. purpose here, transience. Mm-hmm. Is is that has he got well, it right? What? Uh, um, I don't know if transience necessarily, because what he offers in that thought is that. Uh, everything is always constantly going away. So it's also a reflection on mortality and perishability and how, um, you know, it's very difficult to think of, um, I guess, the fullness of um, possible connections and how permanent they could be. So one approach to that would be to say, well, if that's the case, you know, why the heck should we care? Or why should we even bother? But for the same reason that that is the way things are, uh, or at least you know our perception of the world can be this way, then um, it offers the possibility too of maybe imbuing each of those very highly perishable moments with even more you know uh, generous attention because they are going away. Mm. Um, just because we can't have them doesn't mean that we can't be fully in them. Or uh, invest each of these fleeting, um, you know, moments with more more than just elegy, more than just remorse, or regret, or sorrow. Um, so this poem uh, actually began, I think, uh, in a in a uh, situation observing, you know, weather reports. I I actually was. Um, uh, taking a number of trips for conferences at around the time I wrote this, and there was all these weather disturbances. And some of the things you hear in this poem are actually snippets from, you know, news bulletins and um, thinking about the fickleness of both uh, weather and human weather and human events, uh, I think is also another uh, layer which which adds to that idea of our mortality, our, our perishability, about how time is a river that's taking everything away. And so how do you position yourself against all of these uh, immutable, unchangeable things? Do you refuse mm-hmm. or do you fully you know, um, commit yourself to, well, I'm entering the river anyway? Hmm. Part of what I think about with all of this is attention. Mm-hmm. We've talked about observation. Yeah. And uh, sort of the conventional wisdom stereotype is that poets are maybe more aware. They're, they're, they pay closer attention. And I don't know if that's true, but um, a lot of what you see, these images, you know, you, I might view that and, and, it's, and it's gone. You record it. Mm-hmm. You process it. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about, about awareness. It's, it seems like you would be intensely aware mm-hmm. of everything going on around you. Right. Uh, I guess that also is connected to my um, writing poems daily, a a sort of discipline I have adopted for myself, a mode of working. Um, And uh, I don't know, but I I get very unhappy when I can't get to my writing. I I wear many hats. I'm a full-time academic. I'm a full-time mom, full-time parent. I, you know, you know the drill, short order cook, chauffeur. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> laundress. Right. Yeah. Uh, so writing time, the time to to dream, to, you know, play with language, to do something that doesn't compute, let's put it that way, that doesn't necessarily have a price tag on it, that, that, that can't just be 
you know, weighed or, or tallied in terms of, you know, how many hours as opposed to what kinds of gain you might get out of it. So that kind of stuff that I feel is important for its own sake because of what you've said about, you know, the the idea of cultivating an awareness um, of things around us. And um, I think that it, it it's the kind of work that uh, is important, that continues to be important because it really is necessary to the um, um, uh, well-being of our own sense of humanity um, and how to be in the world and how to be in the world with other people in a difficult world. So um, that's important to me. So I, since November 20, 2010, I've been writing at least a poem a day, and I have archived some of those, well, you know, at least one poem a day I archive on uh, a poet and publisher friend's, um, uh, I guess he calls it a, a blog, a, a microblog for poetry and poetry-related things, via negativa.org. This is Dave Bonna. So um, there, I, I post these uh, results of um, working in poetry or working in language uh, with um, that faculty of attention, of trying to be as fully as I can be, even for the space of a few moments a day. Hmm. So November 20th, 2010, mm -hmm. was the so day you took this on. You've written a poem a day every day every, since then. At least a poem a day. And so it's four years, two months, and some days huh. wow. now, or 1,540-something days. Mm -hmm. What did you think when you took this on? That it was going to be really hard. You're going to be no. I had no uh, premeditated, uh, you know, plans. I had no. What it was is, um, I think, it was one of those rare times in Virginia where we were actually snowed in, um, and it was either close to or before the Thanksgiving weekend then, and I was bored out of my wits and also bemoaning the fact that during the regular. Uh, run of my day-to-day -day life, you know, I, running a program is not easy to, and being on top of all the different things I have to do as a teacher and as a parent. And I found myself uh, gravitating towards uh, one of the blogs of Dave Bonna and responding in the comment box with a poem to something that he had written. And I said, huh, that was really, you know, uh, that was something. I felt really good about this. And I found myself going back and responding in comment boxes to more things that I had read and, you know, really uh, engaging with that, but responding in, in poetry form. And he noticed and he said, well, you could bring your poems over here to my other side, which is really more, you know, poetry. And you, and he welcomed me as, uh, by now, he considers me generously as a, a co-blogger. Mm -hmm. So I'm very grateful uh, and also... I'm very excited because I have met so many other writers and fellow creative collaborators. A result of this uh, collaboration with other writers and meeting other writers in the um, in the web or in the blogosphere, however mm -hmm. you want to imagine that or call it, uh, we have done um, collaborations using video poetry mm -hmm. also. And Dave, um, on my 50th birthday, he uh, took one of the poems, which is also in this book, Ode to the Heart, Smaller Than a Pencil Eraser, and, and created a video poem uh, or video film poem for it, which is available on Vimeo and Moving Poems, as well as on YouTube. Uh, let me have you read that. Sure. And, and by the way, what, what are you... Are, are you noticing changes in your poems and in, in, your, in your craft? I could think 
of course, if you're a writer, you write, right? Mm-hmm. And so that would fit in. You write a poem a day. On the other hand, I could see the view that uh, you need to polish. You need to, yes. you need to hone yes. it. And, and this sort of runs counter to that. You're, you're churning out a yeah. poem a day. Well, I don't, I don't view it as a, pro, uh, as a factory procedure okay. or as an assembly line thing. What I think has been most uh, immensely useful to me is that it's taught me to cultivate uh, a way to shed the extraneous noise um, a little faster than I used to do before. So to be able to drop down into that space, you know, when I when I say I don't um, plan the time of day when I do my daily poem, for instance. So I will just take the moment when it feels like I can I can have usually from 30 minutes to 45 minutes. I try not to go beyond that because it would feel like belaboring the point, at least to me. And when I'm in that space, you, know, you can't talk to me. I will not make you dinner. I will not do the laundry. I won't answer the phone, so go away. <laughs> but mostly, it's uh, I find those moments in the day where it feels like it is conducive to writing, and that can be anywhere. I can be in the car. I can be waiting in line. I can be you know, at my desk. I can be in between places. But So what it's done is, I think, to um, if you want to go with the metaphor of um, you know, an athlete running laps. I'm not athletic, by the way, so this is the most athletic thing perhaps I can imagine myself doing. Uh, and and in my cheesy cheese ball way, I will say that, you know, I, it's kind of like running with the muse every day. Um, so it get, helps me get rid of the external noise faster. And that's so useful because I can get right to the heart of what I want to do. And I'm not claiming that every session or every time I write is, you know, going to guarantee the production of the absolutely most fabulous poem I have ever produced in my mm-hmm. life. No, not at all. In fact, uh, there are many poems which are, you know, come out rough and um, maybe feel like they're still unfinished. But I try to come as close to the sense of being finished as possible, but I can always go back and they are still my poems. Mm. But I'm also trying to get rid of the um, sort of external pressure provided by uh, things like thinking of, well, if you put a poem on the internet, isn't published, published nowadays? And, you know, my friends warn me, well, if you put it out there, you can't send it to a journal anymore because they consider any appearance on the internet as a publication. But I, I'm really not worried about that because mm. I feel like I, I can... Just keep writing. Hmm. And I, I do go back and revise. Right. So, yes. Uh, so let me uh, reset the scene. We're talking with Louisa A. E. Gloria. She is winner of the May Swenson Poetry Award, mm-hmm. uh, selected this year by Mark Doty. He writes the foreword, and the collection is Ode to the Heart Smaller Than a Pencil Eraser. It's out from Utah State University Press. Let, let me have you read this uh, poem, Reprieve, which is up on, on video. You can, you can view yeah. a video of this. Yeah. Reprieve. If, as Rumi once wrote, the price of kissing is my life, at least this morning, let me not think about all that there is too much of. The weight of living accrued in collapsible boxes, all the kisses that have morphed into deeds and contracts, the kisses now overlaid with the smell of musty evenings in old countries, those that smack of the toil that comes of trying to sweeten others' days. Surely there is room for some plain, no-strings-attached kissing, 
surely a way to modulate the hum of that one cicada in the tree so its voice lifts, doesn't merely drown, in a chorus of other insistent voices? Surely there must be a way to lengthen the echoes of light sifting in the leaves and through damp lattices of neighbors' fences, to dwell without rancor or remorse in moments when I might press my face against your nape to catch that drifting note, unnameable, unmistakable, stirring even my sorrows into fragrance. It's a beautiful line at the end. Thank you. Stirring even my sorrows into fragrance. I wonder, uh, there are, I've talked to writers before about the fact that once you write a piece, then that can be interpreted however the reader is going to interpret that. That's colored a little bit, isn't it? If if someone goes to a video mm-hmm. of you reading your poem or goes to a reading, mm-hmm. you get your interpretation of it. I don't know if you've talked with readers who've, who've read your poems and have maybe come to a different conclusion about a poem, hmm. have, have maybe interpreted it differently. Mm-hmm. And, of course, all, well, are, all are valid, right? Right. Well, I like to think that um, there's really uh, maybe a lot of different ways in which people can take something, hopefully of use or of meaning, from any poem, any piece of literature or art for that matter, um, to take with them uh, into their lives in however way, but that the literature or the artwork provides some kind of first-level context. There's got to be something really concrete uh, and really clear to begin with, and we go from there. Mm. It's not exactly freestyle swimming 101. Mm-hmm. So, um, and this is a something we teach uh, in literature classes and in writing classes that we have to be absolutely clear uh, what the writer is trying to say or what the poem is trying to say before we can make other connections that begin from there mm-hmm. to see if those other connections are stronger or less strong or, you know, what kinds of conversations might uh, be posited. We're going to take another break, and we'll come back with Louisa A. E. Gloria. Uh, her latest collection is Ode to the Heart Smaller Than a Pencil Eraser. It's published by Utah State University Press. She's the winner most recently of the May Swenson Poetry Award. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m., offering a selection of French pastries and a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at crumbbrothers.com. We are back on Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our last segment now with Louisa A. E. Gloria. She is winner of the May Swenson Poetry Award. And her latest volume of poems, Ode to the Heart Smaller Than a Pencil Eraser, is published by Utah State University Press. Louisa A. Gloria is professor of creative writing in English and director of the MFA Creative Writing Program at Old Dominion University. And she's published 10 previous volumes of poetry. Her work has appeared in numerous anthologies and journals. And uh, she has four daughters, makes her home in Virginia. Uh, so I, I wonder, I'd like to, uh, Louisa, Gloria, I'd like to have you read a couple of poems that uh, struck me. I couldn't really tell you why, 
I, I guess it, it's it's as individual as the reader, mm-hmm. him or herself, right? So the page thirty-eight. There are a couple of poems, both of them letters. Mm-hmm. You have uh, oh, a few poems, mm-hmm. letter to so-and-so. So the first is Letter to Arrhythmia. Okay. Letter to Arrhythmia. Dear Arrhythmia, dear perennially sidestepping, asynchronous and rapid tachycardia, I've learned not so much to fancy up my footwork as to fake a passable improv. Not even time to do my nails, check my hair, or lines for an audition call. But here we are again in the molasses of a telenovela, gliding from moments of near hysteria, then shimmying to the Copacabana as doors revolve like windmills in the background. And it's true, then, what they say about you, how you break knees, break hearts, and then ask, will you dance? Sometimes I want to stop. Just be the wallflower, enjoy the view, be the one the waiters come and tend to, their silver trays bobbing with fancy pileated tufts of napkins. Oh, but I've never known the ease of a down-ear partner, only you dealing and dealing it out, sometimes more than I can muster. <laughs> Some good imagery there. Uh, maybe I was responding to just the... Uh... I find telenovelas to be mysterious. There, mm-hmm. it's it's sort of soap opera taken to the nth degree. Right, and lots of hyperbole yeah, lots of and hyperbole. lots of yeah. drama, yes. lots of uh, crying and wringing of yeah. hands, yes. and you know, <laughs> I will never or right. always and forever. You right. know, all of these extremes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, extremes, mm-hmm. um, and wildly popular. I don't know. Maybe something in us uh, responds to the hyperbole. Well, I think we want a sense of bigness because there's so much of the minutiae of everyday life and we want to see something maybe portrayed in a way that makes it seem like, well, our little stuff isn't so bad when in comparison to all the, the drama we see. They've, they have it worse. You know? and, and at the same time, they provide a canvas because they are sort of larger and unreal and very, very much out of proportion maybe to the way we might experience things in real life, maybe we get that sense of maybe we can, you know, manage somehow. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And there's a there's sometimes um, culture doesn't translate. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, when I watch Mexican television. Mm-hmm. Oh, and my in-laws, they love <laughs> Korean telenovelas. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. They so, don't speak it, but they, they understand. And, and so sometimes it translates very well, right, even if right, you don't speak the language. Right, right. Sometimes there's a little bit of a barrier. For example, some of the shows I watch in Mexican television, the audience is falling down. Mm-hmm. It's just laughing their mm-hmm. their eyes out, and, mm-hmm. and, I, and I just don't get it. I guess the, some cultural barriers are, are a barrier. Mm-hmm. But then again, it's the... The translatability of human experience, not to say that, um, you know, everything can be universalized because I think we also want to guard against essentializing uh, human dilemmas and human situations because that really just goes against the grain of being sensitive um, to what people are experiencing. But in in a way, these things are uh, a kind of wall against which which we can throw our own stuff and see how it compares. Mm. Right. And I, I guess um, other things that, that have a similar kind of bigness, uh, you know, the Greek 
um, dramas, the Greek tragedies, mm. are also very telenovela-like. That's, that's oh true. Oh, my gosh. That's true. Yeah. yeah. They, they have the sheen of the classics to yes, them. Yes, They're yes. more acceptable, yes, I guess. But, yes, uh, But that, that's true. Yeah. 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 I wonder if you'd read the next one. Letter uh, to Levity. Letter to Levity. There are some striking, some funny images. There are, striking yeah. striking images here. And, and some of these things maybe uh, I, I have to explain that when I wrote this um, poem, uh, I was working with some snippets of things that, in the news. It might seem like a, an occasional poem, therefore. And at the time that I wrote this, um, uh, Prince William and Kate were not yet married, or they were about to be married, and there was such a big hubbub in the news. And you'll hear other things that were happening in the news at, at around that time in this poem. Letter to Levity. Dear buoyancy, dear levity, dear little digression. Dear necessary respite from gravity and circumspection, your voice is just audible over the wind like a junco's chitter. Leaves like tongues lift from the newly melted forest floor, busily trading all kinds of news from the world. For instance, why did I not know before today of Qaddafi's all-girl coterie of virgin bodyguards, smart as models in their khaki outfits, or of how he sometimes likes to camp out in five-star hotel gardens in a sumptuous, heated Bedouin tent guarded by a camel? Or of unsinkable Molly Bee, the cow that jumped the slaughterhouse gate and fled authorities by swimming across the Missouri River? She's safe now in the Montana sanctuary. They say that Elton John's in town this weekend. I want to know if he's traveled with the same grand piano that workers in Sarcoya Cello scratched their heads over, wondering how to hoist it through the narrow windows of Catherine the Great's gilded ballroom. And what about those three men in Malaysia who made off with 725,000 condoms still missing? Or the Mexican woman now on her ninth day of a hunger strike demanding an invitation to Prince William's wedding? A 35-year-old naked man was captured on surveillance video taking sausages from the kitchen of a retirement home. Who knows why these things happen? Perhaps an inexplicable longing seized them all in the night. Some order not to be disobeyed flashed on in the cortex of the brain. Once, my daughter's piano teacher mistook a gift of strawberry body butter for yogurt, she called, half laughing and half in pain, saying she was just so hungry that it smelled so beautiful and good, and suddenly she wanted it more than anything in the world. <laughs> Those are some amazing images. Just collected, I guess, from yeah, the news and yeah, such. Yeah. And of course, from your A composite your life, yeah. of different things. Yeah. Who knows why these things happen? It's yes, <laughs> fact is stranger than fiction. It is. You couldn't make it up. Letter to Levity. That's uh, Louisa A. Gloria from her collection, Ode to the Heart Smaller Than a Pencil Eraser. She's the May Swenson Award winner for this year. And this book is uh, published by Utah State University Press. I just have a few minutes left. I wonder if there is a poem or two you'd like to read, either from this collection or other uh, collections yeah, of yours. Yeah, perhaps maybe uh, say a little something about the title poem and uh, what it meant to me uh, to sort of use this as a, um, uh, a touchstone, you know, and also thinking about giving it um, the title, giving the book the title uh, from this poem. 
Um, I had read a short essay by Brian Doyle in American Scholar. It was sort of like a meditation on the hummingbird, but it um, brought together a lot of these scientific facts um, about the hummingbird, which is a, an amazing creature, very, very small, but it has a heart uh, that is very strong. And it, in his words, which are very lyrical, it's like a, it's like a prose poem almost, but it is an essay. I, in fact, I think it was picked up by uh, Best American Essays that year in 2013, if I'm not mistaken. And so I kind of took that and uh, it, since he had identified the hummingbird's heart as one of the smallest in the world, and I, I started thinking about, you know, um, what about other small things, things that are smaller than uh, the hummingbird's heart, and do we notice those things to his, his heart? The hummingbird's heart gets noticed and praised in this essay, and so I wanted to turn my attention to uh, other things in the same way. Certainly. Okay. So, Ode to the Heart, Smaller Than a Pencil Eraser, after Brian Doyle's Hoyas Voladoras. I don't know whose translucent wings those are, twitching, disappearing, into a knothole in the ceiling. But in the throes of great uncertainty, I am asked to consider the miniature. A heart the size of a pencil eraser, beating ten times a second, hammering faster than we could hear. A heart that fuels flights more than 500 miles without stopping to rest. Hot heart that kisses at least a thousand flowers a day, but cold slides into a torpor from which it might no longer rouse. Oh, my constellation of fears, shamed by a wing stroke smaller than a baby's fingernail, thunderous as the world's wild waterfalls. Heart like a race car engine by collar, buffered by wind, stripped for nothing but flight. Chant of bearded helmet crests and booted racket tails, violet-tailed sylphs and crimson topazes, rosary of charismatic names, amethyst wood stars, and rainbow-bearded thornbills, puff legs and spatula tails. You've found me out. I have a bag of tortoise coins. I've spent them like a miser, hoarding each little bit of copper against that one stupendous day. I've lived mostly alone in the bricked-up house of my heart, but a wind teeters at the door, all skin and apple breath. Hmm. Ode to the Heart Smaller Than a Pencil Eraser. That's the title poem from the collection, Ode to the Heart Smaller Than a Pencil Eraser, a collection of poems by Louisa A. E. Gloria, who is the May Swenson Poetry Award winner uh, for this year. And she's Professor of Creative Writing and English, Director of the MFA Creative Writing Program at Old Dominion University. Louisa A. Gloria, pleasure. Thanks for coming Thank in. you so much, Tom. And congratulations. Thank you again. On, on the award. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building small precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Though another national park in Utah is famous for arches, Zion National Park has more than you might imagine. Doubt it? Next time you visit the park, take a good look around. All the elements for arch building are readily on hand in Zion.
A natural arch is formed when deep cracks penetrate into a sandstone layer. Erosion wears away the exposed rock layers and the surface cracks expand, isolating narrow sandstone walls or fins. Water, frost, and the release of tensions in the rock cause crumbling and flaking of the porous sandstone and eventually cut through some of the fins. The resulting holes become enlarged to arch proportions by rockfalls and weathering. Worldwide, arches number in the tens of thousands, and probably no place is more suited for their creation than the Colorado Plateau, home of Zion National Park. The vast geology of Zion has created environments as widespread and varied as the topography of the park itself. Hidden in its geologic grandeur are dozens, perhaps hundreds, of freestanding arches of all shapes and sizes. Although freestanding arches may be found in many different types of geologic formations, the Navajo sandstone formation, which makes up the magnificent cliffs of Zion, provides a fertile setting for the creation of these ribbons of rock. Among the many arches in Zion, two stand out, Crawford Arch and Kolob Arch. Crawford Arch is the most visible, clinging to the base of Bridge Mountain a thousand feet above the Zion Canyon floor. It's frequently pointed out to casual observers by an interpretive sign located on the front patio of the Human History Museum. The other famous arch in Zion is not so easily seen. It's located deep in the backcountry of the National Park's Kolob Canyons District and takes a seven-mile hike to reach. Kolob Arch is hidden in a small side canyon perched high on the canyon wall. For most of the 20th century, many believed that Kolob was in fact the world's largest freestanding arch, leading to years of debate and the motivation for various parties of adventurous thrill-seekers to climb on and around the massive span in hopes of securing a defensible measurement. The Natural Arch and Bridge Society long has pondered this question, and using lasers and an agreed-upon definition of what should be measured, says Landscape Arch, in Arches National Park, is the world's longest stone arch. But don't be surprised if the debate continues. The definition used by the society centers on the maximum horizontal extent of the opening. That opening beneath Landscape Arch measures right around 290.1 feet. The opening beneath Zion National Park Kolob Arch, which long had been in the running for world's largest, measures 287.4 feet, according to the group. Kolob Arch has become a favorite backcountry destination for thousands of visitors to Zion. They discover what most arch seekers will tell you. While beauty awaits every seeker at the end of the path, the reward begins unfolding at the trailhead. Anxious to see another arch but not ready for a 14-mile round-trip hike? Then head for Double Alcove Arch. A five-mile round trip along the Taylor Creek Trail takes you into a narrow box canyon toward the Double Arch Alcove, where erosion has carved out natural openings in the Navajo sandstone. For National Parks Traveler, I'm Patrick Cohn. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu.